0: This is the Padverb Podcast. I am your host, KMO, and in this episode of the podcast, I'm going to share a conversation with Jean-Marie Volond. He is a scientist at the Laboratory for Research in Complex Systems, and also an affiliate scientist at the Department of Energy Joint Genome Institute, which is a user facility of the Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory. Earlier this year, in the various science news outlets, it was reported that a new largest ever bacterium has been discovered, one so big it can be seen with the naked eye. And the person making the rounds on their shows to talk about that discovery was this week's guest, Jean-Marie Volond. So we'll cover the basics of the story, just like you did on the other programs, and then we're going to dig deeper. We're going to talk about not only biology, or marine biology in particular, but uh, evolution, taxonomy, and even get into things like the difference between mutualism and paraticism. The largest ever bacterium that we're going to be talking about is called Theo Margarita Magnifica. And that is the only time in this podcast that you're going to hear me say the whole thing aloud. From here on, in the recorded conversation, you'll just hear me say T Magnifica. Alright, here is the conversation with Jean-Marie Volante. This is the PadVerb Podcast. I am your host, KMO, and I'm speaking with Jean-Marie Valland, who is a biologist who's made a rather remarkable discovery. Uh, Jean-Marie, welcome to the PadVerb Podcast.
1: Thank you. Hi, thank you for having me.
0: So we'll talk about your discovery at length in a little bit, but just, you know, as a, a sneak preview, you've discovered the largest bacterium ever, so big it can be seen with the naked eye.
1: Yeah, kind of. I uh, I did not exactly discover it. I, I'm the first author on the on the paper where we report the discovery, but uh, the initial discovery was actually made by Olivier Gros, who's uh, my former PhD supervisor and uh, and now collaborator. So I'm not the one who who first found it in mangrove in the Caribbean. I'm the one who studied this uh, hunt for the last four years.
0: Well, who was it that figured out that it wasn't, uh, or that it was a single bacterium? Uh, that's a good
1: question. So figuring out that it was a bacterium at all, that was the Mm -hmm. first step, uh, that was probably Olivier Gros, who, uh, when he brought those, you know, weird spaghetti looking, uh, filaments back in the lab, he put them under a microscope and he first thought they were not bacteria. He first thought they were complex eukaryotic organisms, but, uh, he could not see any structures that you would expect to find in such uh, samples. So he had a first guess, that was his first guess, that it was a bacteria. And it was later confirmed by a, another scientist in, in the Caribbean, in Guadeloupe, Silvina Gonzalez-Rizzo, who uh, sequenced a gene, uh, that is a gene that we use typically to characterize organisms, and, uh, and she confirmed that it was indeed a bacterium. Confirming that it was a single bacterium, like just one, like a single bacterial cell, just one cell and not, you know, an assembly of cells, Mm -hmm. that was done originally by the the collaborators in Guadeloupe and in Paris. They they looked at uh, large portions of the cells and they could not see any segmentation, any evidence that it was a multicellular organism, which you would expect because it is so big, right? And that's uh, where I joined after all these amazing preliminary data. And uh, and I got samples and I spent a lot of time and effort analyzing them, you know, with a better microscope, better uh, techniques. We came up with tricks and and uh, creative ways how to look at their entireties uh, using microscopes that are normally designed to look at very small areas. And, uh, and we finally produced, you know, convincing evidence that They were really just one cell, a gigantic cell.
0: So you were not the guy mucking around in the mangrove swamp that, you know, actually made first contact with this, but you're the one who spent, what, the most quality time with it in the lab to really figure out what it was that had been discovered?
1: I I spent a fair amount of time in the lab trying to figure out what we were looking at. Yes, that is true. I, uh, I do explore and swim around a weird environment. I've been swimming in this mangrove environment where we uh, collect those samples for my PhD and later for a postdoc. So I, I know this environment very well. And now that I'm here in California, I, I keep, you know, going uh, with my mask and snorkel in weird places to look at weird microbes. So I'm I'm also familiar with that aspect of the work. But uh, but no, I'm not the one who swam around mangrove and found them originally.
0: Gotcha. Well. I imagine a lot of folks listening don't know where Guadalupe or Guadalupe is, and I could say it's in the Lesser Antilles, and I'm afraid for a lot of uh, geography deficit Americans, uh, that doesn't even help. So where was this thing discovered?
1: Yeah, so Guadalupe is a—it's an island in the Caribbean. It's uh, actually an archipelago of, of islands that is closing the Caribbean Sea on the east. So it's in between the Caribbean Sea and the Atlantic Ocean. It's uh, just a little bit north from French Guiana and uh, and basically the, the top north coast of Brazil, so yeah, it's uh, it's in between uh, South uh, and North America, closing the Caribbean Sea on the east. It's it's a French uh, territory, a French island.
0: I haven't looked at it on the map. Is it anywhere near uh, Grenada?
1: It is not too far. Yeah. So, so, sometimes people know other Caribbean islands in the same archipelago that are more famous uh, mm-hmm. in the US, like uh, I don't know, like uh, Barbados, where Rihanna is from, for instance, that sometimes rings a bell. Uh, there's Dominica, there's uh, Martinique, which is another French island in the area.
0: Yeah. Well, the US invaded Grenada in the 1980s, so Gen Xers and boomers will probably remember it from, yeah. from that. <laughs> um, for younger folks, probably doesn't ring a bell. Anyway, let's let's talk about your early history. The, the bio for you that I received starts with your college education. But uh, I know that, you know, from my perspective, uh, a lot of the interests that have guided me through my life I formed before college. So uh, what led you to be not just a biologist, but a biology student?
1: Uh, yeah, thanks for the question. I like that question because when I, so when I was, uh, you know, a high school or even middle school student, you know, we already got asked a lot, what do you want to do later? And, and for me, it was always a very stressful question because I had really no clue what I wanted to do. And, and that remained like this for a very long time. Like I I didn't have a passion for biology uh, before starting to studying biology. I didn't know what I was going to do with my life at all. And, uh, and that was a little bit stressful. So I like to tell that story about, uh, about how I ended up being a scientist because I am just thinking maybe there are other, you know, students that are, trying to figure out what they want to do and they have no idea and they think if they don't have already a clear path and a clear passion it's a it's a big problem but it's not and in my case it was not so anyway i was living in guadeloupe uh, already i was finishing high school Uh, i lived there with my family for for two years and uh, and i really loved the place i really loved you know the friends i had there the the nature around me Uh, there's tropical forest there's Uh, The coral reef, I was doing a little bit of surfing, a lot of diving and snorkeling. And I was just amazed by, you know, the colorful species and creatures you could spot when you just put a mask and a snorkel and and go, you know, a few uh, meters uh, from the beach. So I just wanted to stay there. And and biology was one of the options uh, that you could study in Guadeloupe at the University of uh, Guadeloupe. So I picked this uh, mostly because I wanted to stay there, and it kind of, you know, aligned with some of my activities in the weekends. But that was that was it. And then as I studied it, for the first two years, uh, it was very general biology, you know, not extremely exciting. But some of the classes were starting to become, you know, interesting, like understanding how organisms are built and what's in cells and and what is life really, and you know, where do we come from, evolution, all that kind of topic starting to spark. Some interest, for sure, and then marine biology became something I was really into. And uh, and with my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife, we moved to Réunion Island, so University of La Réunion, which is where, which is uh, in the middle of the Indian Ocean, uh, so very far from Guadeloupe. That was a uh, that was a big deal for us to move there. Uh, we were 19. Uh, I was 19 years old. Left my you know my mom. <laughs> House and, uh, and went there with my girlfriend, and um, so that's that's east from Madagascar in the Indian Ocean, and that's another French island. We have a you know a complicated past. Let's <laughs> let's be diplomatic and put it this way. And uh, and for this reason, there are a couple of places part of France uh, where you can study you know in French universities. So we just picked that. It was a nice opportunity to travel, study marine biology, and discover a new place because it's completely different. So we ended up moving there. And, uh, and we studied uh, marine biology there. And then it became more clear that we both were into that. And uh, and then we yeah, we finished the whole curriculum until we got into the PhD program and became grad students back in the Caribbean, back in Guadeloupe.
0: The United States has uh, numerous territories in the Indian Ocean and the Pacific Islands. And so no judgment. Yeah. <laughs> and y- you had no more to do with any of that colonial stuff than I did. I mean, that was... That's... It's a right. legacy we inherit. It's good
1: to acknowledge uh, and be, you know, conscious about that. I guess.
0: Let's avoid that discussion entirely. Okay. All right. So uh, let, let's talk about first. The word "bacterium" is the singular of "bacteria," or "bacteria" is the plural of "bacterium." Yes. And a bacterium, at least until recently, by definition, was a microbe, something you could not see with the naked eye. I've I've heard you say elsewhere that if T-Magnifica. And what, what's the, the full, full name of T-Magnifica?
1: So the full name is Thio Margarita Magnifica.
0: Which means it's a sulfur-eating, pearl-wearing, big thing. Yeah, the, the <laughs> Thio
1: Margarita part uh, means sulfur pearl. Margarita mm-hmm.
0: means pearl, and
1: Thio is the, 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 the way we say sulfur. And the reason why it's called like this is because the first uh, Thio Margarita species that was discovered off the Namibian coast in the deep sea sediment uh, was already kind of a giant microbes. It's it is a giant bacterium. Also it is also uh, visible, like the largest ones are visible with the naked eye as well. And they look like pearls and uh, and they eat sulfur and they live in uh, sulfur rich environments. So they got named thio Morgarida.
0: Some uh, of them even living in and around like uh, mud volcanoes or other You know, very hot but uh, sulfur rich geological formations.
1: Yeah, they definitely live in extreme, what we call extreme environments. Yes. Yeah. In terms of pressure, uh, hydrogen sulfide, also the the sulfur that is for them a source of uh, nutrient, a source of of energy, is a very uh, toxic compound that is deadly to most animals, including us, actually.
0: So, T. Magnificat itself, though, is it considered an extremophile? That is
1: a good question. Actually, I've never (laughs) been asked that. I probably, yes, but not because of the pressure it is exposed to, because it doesn't come from the deep sea. It comes from very shallow coastal waters. However, it lives in an environment where the concentration of hydrogen sulfide, these toxic compounds, are very, very high. There are similar concentrations of hydrogen sulfide in mangrove sediments than in some of the deep sea hydrothermal vents, for instance.
0: So it's it's an extremophile in as much as part of its evolutionary strategy is to inhabit a niche which is pretty toxic to most other life forms.
1: I wouldn't say to most life forms, but mm-hmm. to most animals, yes. Okay. Because most life forms are not animals, and and uh, so we, you know, most of the biodiversity is microbial, is uh, bacteria. There are bacteria and archaea and single cell eukaryotes, and uh, and many of them are well adapted to these environments.
0: Okay, demonstrating my uh, mammalian privilege there <laughs> <laughs> so let's uh, let's dig into some of these terms that you're using actually i I started to steal your thunder, but i'll I'll let you say it. If most bacteria were human sized, how big would T magnifica be?
1: If bacteria were human sized, T magnifica would be about five kilometers high. It would be <laughs> as tall as as a mountain as as one of the largest mountain we have so it would be yeah it would be a pretty weird encounter right and and for us microbiologists when we started to realize we were looking at such a gigantic bacterium that was a very you know uh, exciting and strange uh, discovery
0: so let's lay out some basic vocabulary for people who like me are many decades out from their most recent biology class There are different types of cellular organisms, prokaryotes and eukaryotes. What's the major difference between those two?
1: So this dichotomy between prokaryotes and eukaryotes, that's the historical way of, you know, classifying things. We now try to uh, use uh, the three domain classification, but I'll explain that maybe just after. So prokaryotes, the origin of the term, the Latinic origin, means before the carrion, which is the, the nucleus. So prokaryotes are cells that have their DNA that is not contained in a membrane-bound structure, which is called the nucleus. Eukaryotes means, Eucaryotes uh, means the true caryotes, the nucleus. The, those are the cells that are making up, you know, animals and plants and fungi and many other microbes. Those are the cells that have their DNA contained in a nucleus. So, yeah. And the reason we try to slowly go away from prokaryotes and eukaryotes is because now we know that there are actually three domains, which are the eukaryotes. This is still a term we use. And uh, prokaryotes is actually split into two groups, the bacteria and the archaea.
0: And what's the difference there?
1: The difference when you look at them under a microscope are not obvious at all. So if you are not uh, looking at their, you know, their sequence, uh, the sequence of their DNA molecules, you won't spot much difference. They are microbes. Most of them are microscopic and, uh, and they have kind of similar shapes. They have a completely different evolutionary history. So that's what makes them two clearly distinct groups. They have different evolutionary history.
0: But... Morphologically, nothing particularly jumps out.
1: Uh, no. Okay. I mean, if you, you know collect a little bit of water from the sea or whatever, and you filter all the microbes, and, uh, and you look at them under the microscope, you will see these small rod-shaped or spherical cells that are just a few microns, maybe one, two, three microns, uh, some micrometers. Uh, the, that's the scale of these cells. And then you won't, you won't be able to tell the difference between bacteria and
0: archaea. And tell me about the name Archaea, as somebody in the, the comments here says, Archaea suggests that they are an older form. Is that the case? Um, I'm not sure we can say that. Actually. <laughs> uh,
1: I mean, there is this idea that if there's a, you know, a, a common ancestor, like a like a first, if there's a common origin of all uh, life forms that have uh, then radiated and evolved and diversified along evolution, then everything that's living today has the same age, right?
0: But uh, sure but we, we talk about things like crocodiles being you know more primitive forms that have been unchanged for a very long period and then species like you know homo sapiens which diverged from a common ancestor with chimpanzees just you know a few hundred thousand years ago or maybe a couple million years ago
1: that's i think that's a misconception that is it um yeah it is i mean uh from the perspective of uh, an evolutionary biologist and i think that's a trick question that is uh, asked to students in evolutionary biology class Uh, you know, who is more evolved than who uh, in the tree of life. And there are no species that are more primitive or more evolved. Every living species today has the same age in terms of uh, evolution. If life started on Earth, uh, you know, around 4 billion years ago, then uh, everything that's alive today has the same age. Those uh, species that are extinct, and we have fossil records, those, uh, they did not make it until today. So those are younger species, if you will. But a, a bacterium, a crocodile, a bird, a, a whale, whatever, there's no hierarchy uh, in terms of who's more primitive and who's more evolved.
0: Well, I'm pretty sure I didn't utter the forbidden phrase more evolved, but I, I did say primitive. So given this taxonomy, what is this um, eyelash-sized single bacterium T-Magnifica that, that you've had a hand in, in articulating?
1: What it is, so it is a, um, it is a gamma proteobacteria that that's a group a very famous group of bacteria and um, and it lives in a mangrove marine environment so it grows on the sulfidic sediment on top of of the mud that settles down in the mangrove waters along the coast of Guadeloupe in the Caribbean and it grows into these uh, white filaments that are like you said the, the size and the shape of an eyelash yeah so that's uh, that's what they are, I
0: guess. And how do they reproduce?
1: We, we see that they, they have this um, shape, so it's like a tube, like a, th- a thin thread. And then towards the tip of this filament, it constricts gradually. And the constrictions are smaller and smaller until the very tip of the fil- filament, can, the constriction closes off. And it, release, it releases a bud, a terminal bud, we call it. So it reproduces through budding. And these uh, terminal buds that are smaller but still visible to the naked eye, they're just uh, 0.2 millimeters in length. Uh, They would then detach and uh, disperse in the water and probably settle down when they like the environment and attach to a substrate, attach to something hard, like a a debris, a leaf, dead leaf. They are often found on on, uh, sunken leaves, but it could be, you know, plastic or oyster shell. Whatever, and they will attach and grow again into a new giant bacterium.
0: But they're genetically identical to the parent.
1: Yes, they That's are it. actually very similar. We've we've uh, analyzed the genome of uh, now about uh, fifty different individual filaments, and they are completely identical.
0: So, how do they evolve?
1: That is a big question. <laughs> I am not sure I can answer that question. How did they evolve? Um, they are very interesting bugs in terms of evolutionary history. So, what we can say is, how is their genome? How does their genome look like? And that gives us some idea about uh, their evolutionary history. So, we know they are in this group of gamma proteobacteria. So, they, they evolve within this group. Uh, we know that their genome is quite large. It's, it's a very big genome, it's uh, 12 megabases. That is about four times, three to four times the size of the average genome size for bacteria. We know that it contains many more genes than, uh, than most bacteria as well. And there are some uh, interesting differences in the genome compared to other gamma photobacteria as well. So I, I don't know how much in detail we want to go into that. But uh, yeah, but the short answer is we don't exactly know how they evolved. When we look in their genome, we also see that they, they have some genes that come from other groups of bacteria. So they, there was apparently a lot of exchange. We call it horizontal gene transfer. Mm-hmm. It's basically exchange of genetic material uh, between unrelated group of bacteria. And they acquired many genes, so maybe also some functions from other groups of bacteria, such as cyanobacteria, which is another very fascinating group of bugs.
0: So horizontal gene transfer, I guess, is the answer to my larger question, which is just how does an organism that reproduces asexually evolve? I mean, where does variation come from? And uh, I guess from absorbing other organisms without destroying them. Yeah.
1: So I I, uh, I won't be able to go too much into detail because I'm just not an expert into that.
0: You are in this conversation.
1: <laughs> yeah. So most, uh, so bacteria and archaea, evolve and, and their genome evolve and changes through a series of processes there's you know the mutation they can exchange genes pieces of genome can you know um, move around uh, there's a lot of uh, there are a lot of uh, different processes that are known outside of sexual reproduction uh, that explain how species evolve
0: okay uh, are you familiar with the science youtuber anton petrov
1: i think i am he's uh, he made a video about uh, the magnifica, right?
0: He did. And it's probably the most interesting thing I've seen on it.
1: Yeah, it, yeah. it was an early video. I think he, he did that video after the, we released the preprint. So even before the publication, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yeah, he did a pretty good uh, job at explaining uh, our initial discovery.
0: Well, I heard from him and I've heard nowhere else uh, a very interesting feature. Of this critter which is that um, most bacteria have just a, a single skin a single sheath and this one has two and the middle column of this thing is mostly just water and all of the organelles and other you know interesting complicated bits of cellular machinery are in this thin layer between the two membranes right and as far as as far as i know that's not a common feature of of bacteria
1: it is not a common feature of bacteria, no. It is also not completely new. Uh, there are other giant bacteria that, that have similar strategy. To we, we think that this is one of the ways that they can deal with some of the limitations that normally keep bacteria in the microscopic world. So uh, let's step back a little bit. So bacteria, most of them, they are microscopic. They are just, so we won't say primitive, but simple cells in terms of compartments and how they organize their chemical soup, their biochemistry inside of their cell, right? So like you said, it's, a, it's basically a, a sac that contains a bunch of chemicals that react with one another and that allow them to live. There are some compartments uh, in those uh, you know, most common and most, most studied bacteria, but not too many and not as many as, uh, as in eukaryotic cells, the cells that make up animals and plants. But anyway, so bacteria are supposed to be limited by the fact that they are not able to move chemicals around actively. They just rely on passive processes. So they, they basically, they are just uh, bathing in, let's say oxygen for instance, and oxygen diffuses through their body, through their cell, through chemical diffusion, and will reach eventually the, the spot where oxygen is needed in the cell for whatever process, right? And this passive diffusion is uh, is fine when you are considering microscopic scales, like diffusion will happen almost instantly. It will take, I think, one microsecond for oxygen to diffuse along one micrometer. So that's fine, but if you consider a bacterium that would grow into a much larger organism, because there is no active way to transport molecules around, then diffusion becomes a much too slow process to have this internal chemistry happening efficiently. So one one way that bacteria evolved to work around this limitation is to have a large central compartment, which is filled with a liquid, sometimes nitrate or sometimes something else, which occupy most of the the cell volume and the living part of the cell, the, the part where the chemical reaction, the biochemistry is happening, is just a thin layer at the periphery of the cell, which is just a few micrometer thick. So that's exactly what's happening in Thio magnifica and in other uh, large or giant bacteria. They they limit the the thickness of their biochemically active parts to just a few micrometers. So that's one of the feature of this giant bacterium. Uh, but this, uh, we we observed it again. We characterized it. We actually quantified it. We put uh, numbers, you know, uh, biovolume of the central vacuole versus biovolume of this layer of cytoplasm around it. But we uh, we did not discover that. That was known
0: before. So it is this this central column of water that is not dependent on. Uh you know, passive distribution of nutrients and whatnot that allows Team Magnifica to get as big as it does. Is there a, an evolutionary or survival advantage to being this large?
1: Uh, obviously, there is because they evolved that way. So there, mm-hmm. they, they, there was some uh, kind of benefits to become giant. There are theories. We have not studied that. In particular, about Thyromagora magnifica, there are a couple of scientific publications out there that have discussed that. And uh, there are two ideas that I can share with you. So one is that if you become hundreds of times bigger than your predators, then you don't have to worry about being eaten by your predators. So one, benefits, one benefit might be to escape predation. That's one thing. Although, I mean, that's, a, that's an interesting idea, but uh, then you might run into other troubles with other predators that are adapted to larger preys, right? Like uh, these bacteria, they don't have to worry about microbial eukaryotes like ciliates that are the most common predators of bacteria in the microbial world, but they are now potential prey for fish or, you know, other
0: animals, for instance. Well, I'm I'm much bigger than a piranha, but I'm I would be quite fearful of swimming, you know, amongst hundreds of them. So, <laughs>
1: yeah. yeah, that is, that is true. That is true. Yes, actually, um, let let's keep that for for after because I just want to tell you the second potential advantage, which I think in this case might be much more relevant. So, so they live in this um, very uh, specific chemical environment at the surface of the mangrove sediment. So. Below them is this anoxic, so oxygen-free sediment that is full of hydrogen sulfide. And above them is the seawater that is free of hydrogen sulfide, but full of oxygen. And their way of living, their metabolism, is called chemosynthesis. They are sulfur oxidizers. They use the energy contained in hydrogen sulfide that is released from the sediment, which they oxidize using... The oxygen from the seawater, so they need to be exactly at this interface between the sediment and the seawater, and this chemical environment is uh, contains a lot of free energy, if you will, for uh, microbes, if they have the capability to position themselves exactly at the interface. Because what I didn't say is that those two chemical uh, molecules, hydrogen sulfide and oxygen, if they meet, they will react with one another. You know, it's a non-biological process, it's just a chemical reaction. So bacteria that, that do sulfur oxidation, they have the challenge to be exactly in between those two layers. So they can access both of these chemicals. And you can imagine that if you are a microscopic organism, it's hard to move along large distances to find the right spot. And it's, it's very hard to stay at the right place because this interface might, might uh, move around, uh, you know. But for larger filaments, it might be easier to remain at the right spot and have, uh, you know, one end dipping in the anoxic sulfidic layer and the other end dipping in the oxygen, full of oxygen um, seawater.
0: So are they rooted like blades of grass?
1: Uh, I mean, when you look at them... In their natural environments, they are actually a little bit like, you know, grass growing on on a sunken leaf. So there are hundreds of thousands of white filaments growing vertically above the sediment. Yeah. But uh, but they are not directly attached to the sediment. They are on, on some debris or substrates that are laying there.
0: Interesting. So I, I suspect that the, the regular audience is maybe itching to uh, get to the point. Whoa, what's the point of all this? And, uh, you know, you don't have to come up with the point. You, you worked on the, you know, the nitty gritty and that's your job. But you do have some, some ideas about, well, I think, that involve cooperation versus competition in evolution. And I'd like to, to move on to those. What's um, a basic primer of this idea? What, what, what do we need to know to get started to dig into it?
1: So, so first, if you're asking, um, you know, about what's the point of, of describing, discovering and describing this giant bug, I think this is separate from cooperation and competition and, and all that, because we are, we are not describing a bacterium that has a, a symbiotic interaction with other microbes here. It's a, it's a single organism that lives by itself. It's actually having a couple of innovative ways to keep other microbes at bay. So it, it's not colonized or being eaten by other bugs. But the, the whole point and the reason why our paper got some attention is that not only this bacterium is you know the largest bacterium ever observed, it's also that it has its DNA that is not free-floating inside of the cell. Its DNA is contained in a membrane-bound structure, we call it an organelle. That is uh, something that is not typical in bacteria. So, like I explained in the beginning, you know, there's this dichotomy between prokaryotes and eukaryotes, which you can say is the dichotomy between sometimes people refer as simple life versus complex life. And in the prokaryote group, so bacteria and archaea, the DNA is almost always, two exceptions, but almost always free-floating in the cell. While in the eukaryotes, so the so-called complex life the DNA, the blueprint of the cell, is contained in a structure surrounded by a membrane that is the nucleus. And in, uh, in thio Magnifica, the DNA is also contained in a structure which is surrounded by a membrane. So that makes it a, a bug that is not, you know, following the rule, one of the very basic rules that, that's in every biology textbook, that its DNA is, uh, is contained in a structure surrounded by a membrane. And the reason why it's interesting for us is because they are not related to the origin of complex life, the origin of eukaryotic cells, they are not related to that at all. So they are not changing the story about what's the origin of animals and plants. However, they represent for us scientists a rare opportunity to study a microbe that is currently evolving some higher level of complexity. It is a bacterium that is currently living, we can sample it, we can study its DNA, we can put it under a microscope, we can do all kinds of experiments, and we can try to understand how it is making that transition from microscopic life to macroscopic life, and from uh, you know, relatively simple cell organization to more complex cell org- organization with compartments, including compartmentalization of the DNA.
0: So it has compartmentalized DNA but it doesn't really have a nucleus, right?
1: No, it's not a nucleus. The the concept of uh, the nucleus in the eukaryotic cell is that the DNA is protected in, inside of uh, of a structure and that then copies of the genes are produced and then they are exported out of the nucleus. It's uh, it's called a messenger RNA. Mm-hmm. So it's a it's a copy, a reverse a copy of of the gene and then Outside of the nucleus, in a different compartment of the cell, this uh, molecule, this it's still genetic code, it's read and translated into proteins to build you know, more uh, biomolecules, uh, more membranes, everything that's needed to make the cell or to grow and to divide. So in complex eukaryotic cells, the nucleus has this function to separate the transcription, which is the, uh, pr- producing the, the messenger RNA, from traduction, which is the traduction of the genetic code into proteins. In uh, thio and magnifica, both these processes are happening within that small compartment. So in that sense, it is uh, conceptually completely different from a nucleus. However, there is this analogy that the genetic material is contained in a structure with a membrane, which, because it's such an important concept in, you know, in, in microbiology that bacteria and archaea are not supposed to have these compartments for the DNA. Uh, this discovery this publication kind of shakes a little bit the that important concept in microbiology so that's why that's why we are interested in that
0: so that's the first part of the question which you know you you adroitly divided into the second part let's transition to the your notions of evolution and the role that cooperation and competition play in it i mean the standard version of evolution is that it's a strictly competitive adventure yeah you know might struggle m- for life exactly right? yeah it's a survival of the fittest yeah uh, and it's implied that there is a competition there yeah so where does cooperation enter into it so
1: i think that is one of the most exciting thing that's happening in evolutionary biology and that's at least for me one of the most exciting stuff to study outside of these giant bugs so this is now a completely different field of study so this is the field of studying symbiotic interaction symbiosis. And uh, and you're right. Uh, the original view uh, on the evolution, mostly because of Darwin's heritage or legacy, sorry,
0: mm-hmm.
1: is uh, that life is a struggle and only the fittest survive. And it's mostly about competition. And you know, if if you whatever you do, if you reproduce, if if you have a benefits, a competitive advantage, then you will have more progeny, and then you will spread more, and uh, and you will be selected for. What is very interesting is that actually in that book, in the Origin of Species from Darwin, the seminal book, he wrote something like, if anyone can show me an example in nature of altruism, like pure cooperation that does not provide a direct benefit, then it would annihilate his entire uh, theory of uh, natural selection. Right? And what we see now, after about 40 years of studying symbiotic interactions is that there's actually a lot of cooperation in the natural environment. Microbes cooperate with each other. We have cooperative bacteria on our skin, in our gut. There's actually probably not a single microscopic organism like plants and, and uh, animals that is not interacting with microbes. And most of these interactions are beneficial or neutral interactions. So We might have been biased a lot towards competition and, you know, studying competition rather than cooperation. And we are realizing now that cooperation is is very important for the evolution of species.
0: What does the understanding that cooperation does play a large role in how organisms get along in the world, uh, how should that adjust our view of evolution, you know, as the survival of the fittest, as the winners of the competition?
1: Well, if cooperation plays a major role in in the evolution of species, then uh, it's very important that we acknowledge that, we realize that, and we basically kill that bias that uh, it's all about competition. That's, I guess, uh, why it's important. And uh, in a more, you know, broad sense, almost in a philosophical way, it's also, I think, very important to realize that cooperation is a driving force of the evolution and not only competition, because you can... I mean, I, it's outside of my expertise, so I'm not speaking now as a, as a scientist uh, from the <laughs> Laboratory of uh, Research in Complex System or the of the Beckley Lab, but uh, my, my own view on that is that if cooperation in nature is uh, more important than competition, that might, you know, teach us how we should behave. And, and you know, in a way, I mean, I, I wonder how much this idea introduced by survival of the fittest and struggle for life how much that influenced our behavior as a social species you know what i mean
0: i do i mean the the whole notion of survival of the fittest seems to be foundational and it also seems to be sort of a justifying narrative in our political and our economic systems you know we uh, our economics is based on competition and it is based on the idea that you know in a fair market Uh, One that is not, you know, unfairly monopolized or or influenced that the people who are providing the most value and the best service are the the ones who are going to start firms that proliferate and, and profit and that those who are not providing much value are going to fall by the wayside. But, you know we don't really live that way I mean the, the big players once they get big suddenly competition becomes a sin and they want to squash it by ever whatever means possible you know either by buying up potential rivals or um, capturing legislators and regulators and and making regulations favorable to big players and unfavorable to small players but still there is this this basic justification for uh the failure and suffering of you know the non-winners in our society you know we, we don't explicitly invoke Charles Darwin in natural selection, but it, it does seem to be that there's a, uh, a coalescence and um, a, a sort of synergy between Darwinian thinking and you know uh, democratic, capitalistic uh, societies.
1: Yeah, I, I, I like the idea that uh, if, we, if we acknowledge more uh, the role of cooperation and yeah, the role of cooperation in the natural environments, that might influence us in a good way. That is for sure. And it's, a, it's also a very exciting uh, field of study because there is this dilemma that if you have, so first I should define symbiosis, right? Because I've used that term. I'm not sure if uh, everybody is familiar with the term symbiosis.
0: It's always good to define your terms. Yeah.
1: Well, <laughs> symbiosis is a, a, a word that broadly defines the living together of different organisms. The first use of the, ter- of the term uh, by Anton de Vary, I think in, Uh, I'm not sure, 1700-something or 1800-something, was to define his microscopic observation of lichens. He he put uh, lichens under a microscope and he realized that lichens were not plants uh, like it was assumed back in the days, but they were actually a consortium, a living together of different microbes. So he called that a symbiotic interaction. And this word now is used a lot in biology because uh, we realize more and more That there are uh, different species that are living together in a, you know, in long-term relationships. Like I said, like the bacteria in our guts or the the bacteria around the roots of plants or, you know, um, microscopic algaes in uh, the coral tissue, all these symbiotic interactions that are very important for for nature and ecology and all that.
0: Fungal plant interactions.
1: Yeah, yeah, Mm -hmm. that too. But uh, yeah, definition of symbiosis, uh, so symbiosis is broadly defined as the living together of different organisms. And this living together, scientists try to evaluate the nature of this interaction to try to say, is it beneficial? So there are two partners, right? Like in simple interaction, a symbiosis between two partners, you can try to quantify the benefits and the costs to define if this symbiosis is beneficial for both. Then we call it mutualism because it's mutually beneficial. If it's uh, uh, beneficial for one partner, but uh, has a cost, a really high cost for the other, then we call it parasitism. And if it's uh, beneficial for one, but uh, neutral for the other one, we can call it commensalism. So we have all kinds of boxes where we can, you know, store these different types of relationships. The reality is that it's, it might be much more complicated and, and and the nature of these symbiotic interactions might change and evolve over time, depending on the environment and, and and all that but uh, yeah but long story short there is this interesting dilemma that uh, if two species live together in a symbiotic relationship there seems to be always a higher benefit to not pay the cost of this uh, symbiotic interaction to, to kind of cheat on your partner to not cooperate there's a higher benefit, benefit to not cooperate than to cooperate because cooperate is always costly. You need to adapt to your partner, you need to give up on something, or you need to, you know? So there's always a cost. It
0: sounds like game theory.
1: Exactly. And uh, so if that's true, it seems to be true, if there's always a cost, then it's always a little bit more rewarding to not play the game of cooperation and to defect your partner because then you get the benefits your partner because that's how the relationship has been established but you don't pay the cost so you get the benefits without paying the cost that's even better than than the other scenario so if that's uh, if, if
0: if there's no reputation
1: involved right exactly but there's no mm-hmm. reputation in the microbial world right like they is there not i, I mean uh, bacteria they don't and, and we have to be careful uh, we're going to be accused of uh, anthropomorphism but mm-hmm. bacteria cannot foresee the future they cannot you know they are not worried about their reputation they are not they are social sometimes but, but um, so anyway if symbiotic partners have a higher benefits to not cooperate uh, according to s- uh, survival of the fittest and you know uh, natural selection those should be selected because they get the same benefits as the others but they pay less costs so they should reproduce more and they should spread more in the population and at the end only those remain and symbiosis or mutual cooperative behavior should disappear that's the theory what we observe in nature is that that's not happening. We observe that cooperation is everywhere and that uh, mutualistic interactions are everywhere. So so how come? We don't know. That's uh, that's uh, something that we are very interested uh, when we study symbiosis and, and mutualistic symbiosis. How symbiosis is established between two species that uh, did not live together before? How it is maintained is also a big question. And uh, yeah, and we are... beginning of understanding all that and uh, it's very exciting
0: well we're pretty much at the end of the time that we have available for this conversation but i would just invite you to make any sort of closing statement that you think is appropriate
1: yeah uh, okay so i should have prepared that a bit better (laughs) probably but i would go back to you know the initial topic the discovery of the giant bacteria and to leave the audience with the two take-home messages from this uh, publication is that we Discovered that there's a gigantic bacterium that is thousands of times bigger than most bacteria that, uh, that has a higher level of complexity in terms of uh, how it organizes its inner parts with uh, its DNA being contained in those membrane-bound organelles. And, uh, and that's uh, probably an exciting model, an exciting bug to study in the future to try to understand better the emergence and the evolution of complex macroscopic life. Yeah, that would be my tech home message.
0: Okay. All right. So Jean-Marie Verlund, thank you very much. I've enjoyed our conversation. Thank you very
1: much for having me. I enjoyed it too.
0: What did you think of that conversation? Bit of a departure, eh, from what we've been talking about on this podcast in recent weeks. But I don't want, you know, past conversations to really present any sort of straitjacket for what I can talk about in the future. Yeah, we're going we're gonna to get into some grooves uh, topic-wise. Like recently, I've been talking to a lot of people about issues surrounding cognitive science. That's something I'm interested in, but it's not necessarily going to be the focus of this podcast going forward. In fact, you, the audience, here in the early days of the Padverb podcast, have an outsized influence over who I talk to and what we talk about. If there are potential guests that you'd like to hear me talk to, do send them our way, or better yet, direct them to the Padverb podcast guest form, which you can find at en.padverb.com. And you can also communicate with us and with other listeners via our Telegram channel, the link to the Telegram forum, again, is on our website, en.padverb.com. As always, I would like to thank the other members of the Padverb team. They are executive producer Anna Haskell, producers Slava Borizov and Alina Voigt, assistant producer Sonia Saw, audio engineer Vasily Morin with music by Slava Borizov. That's all for this episode of the Padverb podcast. I will be back here one week from today with a new conversation. I hope that you'll join me.